Welcome to Dyslexics Wanted, produced by the Web Innovation Center for Dyslexia. This is Jordan Rich. This podcast celebrates the unique strengths and creativity so often the hallmark of people with dyslexia. My guest today is Mickey Boas. She's the author of One in Five, Our Fighting for Our Kids in a System That is Failing Them. Mickey is a mom determined to get the best education for her dyslexic sons, and she's offering practical tips and advice to other parents navigating the public school system. It's both a rallying cry and an invaluable resource. We're going to talk about the book One in Five. Extremely well-researched with hundreds of interviews, tons of fresh data, real stories of real people working to better the education system for children with dyslexia. Mickey, it's wonderful to have you here on Dyslexics Wanted. Let's start with the story of you and your family and why this mission for you is personal. So I have two boys, 11 and 8, and my husband is dyslexic, and we didn't you know, understand or know the signs early on. And it took me four years, four lawyers, and four different school formats to finally get a formal diagnosis and get him the support that's mandated by law. And when I learned that so many other parents were struggling with one in five children having dyslexia, I decided to quit my job and write this book to get parents' results quicker because we're really in a national education crisis because if a child isn't diagnosed by the age of 10 and not reading by third grade, they're four times more likely to drop out. So I just saw this urgency um, through what I learned in my struggles to be able to help others. You have a website, an organization called InvisibleRedTape.com. And if that doesn't say a ton right off the bat <laughs> about the system, that uh, that's truly impressive. And we'll talk more about that. But one of the tricky things and really frustrating things about this is that it's, for so many people, ethereal. They don't really understand it if they don't have any connection to it. Even educators don't quite understand it. Why do you think that's so? I think it's kind of a top-down problem. So I talk a lot about this in the book. There's three main reasons I think we have this problem. Two-thirds of children with learning disabilities don't get diagnosed or given the support they need. And I feel that's because the federal government passed a law in 1975 that guaranteed our rights to a free and appropriate education and it costs twice as much to educate a child with special needs as it does with one who's neurotypical. And the government has only ever funded up to 15% of that differential. So it leaves state and local governments holding the bag. And in my state of Jersey City, we're currently $155 million underfunded. So how is it humanly possible to educate my child, which then leads to if you don't want to acknowledge the problem because you, don't, you can't support it, why would you screen for it? <laughs> why would you have teachers trained to support it? And so it's this really um, de- de- debilitating trickle-down effect. Which, by the way, occurs in other areas of our system, you know, federal versus state and local. Even as we speak in the midst of this horrible pandemic and economic disaster, things are even going to be tighter. So we'll, we'll address that shortly. Because we're talking about 50 states... 50 separate federalist states. Mm -hmm. That means that somebody listening to this podcast in California might have a totally different experience. Not that it's a good experience, but they might have a different experience. So that makes it even more challenging, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, that's the main reason I wrote this book, um, Jordan, is because if this is not a Jersey City problem, I wanted to show that we have to face these outrageous obstacles nationwide. And when I can tell the story of someone in Massachusetts, in Vermont, in California, in Oregon, that we all have been 
um, struggle to get a diagnosis, not given the support we need for the diagnosis, given a teacher that's untrained. This is a national education crisis, and even if it is um, differs at a state and local level, because the federal government has not done its job in funding, it leaves all of the 50 states um, having to kind of struggle to get air. You cite one in five children in this country are affected by dyslexia. That's 20%. Uh, that's higher than I've ever heard before. Yeah. I'm, I'm quoting, um, as you know, I, I consider her one of the pioneers in, in dyslexia, Dr. Sally Shaywitz in 1983 with Yale University began tracking the reading of 400 kindergarteners. And um, she studied them for over 20 years. And, and she found that of one in five students have dyslexia, and the research is still, you know, showing that to this day. Let's talk a little bit about the impact beyond just the reading skills that we all associate with dyslexia. In your own family situation with your your boys, beyond the the learning in school process, what's happened? Yeah, I mean, I thought that getting my son the diagnosis he needs would open up a world of possibilities, but they gave him 30 minutes of reading a week. So, the average child should be reading proficiently at um, at age seven, and it's not diagnosed until at least 10. And so, you know, he was called the Statue of Liberty for holding his hand up too long mm. to ask for help. I mean, there's, there's serious um, social and emotional issues that come from not getting what you need. And so we had to make the tough decision um, and pull him out and put him in a private school for language-based learning difficulties because we didn't want to see that, you know, prison, school prison pipeline or have this, the self-esteem damage um, not be able to be undone. There's a very interesting dichotomy here. People hear about public education and uh, special needs education being a top priority. In your book, you examine special needs. Some of it's very good. Some of it's just lackluster, totally. They're not focusing on what's really special here. What can we do about that? I also think, again, it goes to back to teacher training. So Emily Hanford's work is amazing on the reading wars. And one of the insights that she found is um, a special education teacher, speaking of what you asked, special, what makes them special, th- these are amazing people that um, you know, get extra training on, on how to teach children with special needs. However, they're being asked to address 14 diff- sorry, 13 different types of disabilities. And only four out of the 10 teacher training schools um, teach phonics and the science of reading. So even when we have a chance mm. to enhance and make our children more special and, and be able to thrive with a multi-sensory learning system, um, they, there's not enough money and support to really to allow these kids to learn in the way that their brains function. I'm very glad that you came to the defense of the individuals. I should say that I have a daughter who is a devoted special needs teacher. My first late wife was one, and I respect them greatly. But there's a lot of frustration among the teachers, including the ones you you interviewed, I imagine. Yeah, actually, a lot of parents in the book were special education teachers themselves. One of the most devastating ones was a woman in Washington. She was a special education teacher, and her daughter used to love reading. And she got so beat down by the system. And another mom in Colorado was also a special education teacher. And they felt that their job was at risk for speaking up Mm. for your child. So can you imagine being a special education teacher and having your child at risk and not being able to advocate for them in the way you want? 
it had tragic circumstances for the woman in um, Washington. Her daughter tried to commit suicide twice because, mm. you know, she wasn't given the support she needed. And so fortunately, her mom was able to take her out, homeschool her, get her back on track. But, you know, she's in college to this day and is still kind of reeling from the effects of this early, this early days. The one in five number is also the title of the book, as we said at the beginning, one in five, how we're fighting for our dyslexic kids. The takeaway for me is everyone has to employoy a little of their own inner Aaron Brockovich. <laughs> you have <laughs> to speak a, <laughs> indeed. And let's address what's so important here. This can be a really tough struggle for you. It, it involved losing a ton of money as well as stress mm-hmm. and all the things. But Who else is going to fight for your child if you don't? The parents really have a key role here. Yes, they do. And and also what I think is interesting is as your your kids get older, there's an amazing story out of Oregon where the woman in the book was able to teach her child how to advocate for themselves. And she wrote a letter at this time every year before school started. And she said, hello, teacher, my son, whatever, Um, is struggling with these things, but he knows how to advocate for himself. So he will ask for more time on tests. He will ask for preferential treatment in the, in feeding in the classroom. And I just thought that was such an interesting way Mm -hmm. to kind of pass on the advocacy to your children so that they're able to, um, you know, speak up for themselves and, and get the benefits of that. You found uh, among the interviews with parents quite a bit of frustration, I know. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was the point of putting together 19 different stories from across Mm. the country. Because, again, one person, and thank you for all the work you do interviewing us and putting us here to tell our stories, but one person and one situation does not make a national crisis. If you're not reading by third grade, you're four times more likely to drop out of school. And as my profession as a storyteller, I felt it was my gift to to bring these these stories out and make sure um, that they're being heard. So that's, that's the way to create change. Also, connecting the dots, and you do it quite well, that those who are neglected, who are not taken care of early on in school with dyslexia, often face uh, issues of crime, poverty, drug abuse, relationship struggles. I mean, it's it's a huge deal. But because it doesn't show up like a physical manifestation, it, people uh, tend to neglect it. They tend to poo-poo it. Yeah, I mean, that's been, so there's three causes for why I think we're in this crisis, underfunding, early intervention, and teacher training. And you just brought up the most important one. Two-thirds of children with learning disabilities do not get diagnosed and given the support they need. And for your listeners, you know, the government supports early intervention before the age of three because that's when the brain is still growing and molding and play therapy and speech therapy can be very effective for children with um, dyslexia and sensory issues. And so I, but yet 90% of people don't know about this. It's not talked about with your pediatricians. The average visit for a pediatrician is 10 minutes. So it's very important that you talk about your family history because um, Dr. Nadine Gabb's research shows that if you're given that um, early intervention you know, ideally between pre-K and kindergarten, right? You can accurately diagnose dyslexia at five, that you can, uh, most children can reach up to 92% of reading on grade level. So those early days, the number one thing I heard from all the parents that I interviewed is your teachers keep telling you you're within range. Nobody wants to 
uh, wave the alarm flag or create any red flags. But the number one red flag is if you have a family history. And that's what I've heard in so mm-hmm. many of the interviews that you've done is that the parents have found that they have dyslexia through their children. And so it's really important if you even have a sense, a maternal or paternal instinct that something is going on, don't be scared to wave that red flag because the, the time for intervention and in that window is critical. And it's not simply how the little one is, is sitting there paying attention to the books that you're reading to him or her. There are other signs. What were some of the signs that, that really affected your family with your first one, with your first son? Yeah, I mean, it, he, it, was, it was kind of a classic uh, story in that he talked late, he walked late, he didn't, he had sensory issues when he put on his shoes. You know, other children have a hard time rhyming, uh, remembering letters and sounds, which you need to, to access the language. You know, as you get on older in life, my, my younger son, he started hiding under the table when he was asked to read. He loved to go to school until the reading kicked in, and then he was all of a sudden sick. Mm. So... These are some of the clear signs that um, there's a problem. Mickey, before we conclude, I have to ask you to comment on the famous IEP controversy, because uh, again, state to state, county to county, I hear all kinds of stories having interviewed so many people on this subject. Talk a little bit about IEP, whether or not we need better standardized testing and things like that. Yeah, so to me, what is what is the biggest crime when it comes to an IEP is the word um, appropriate. So we all know that part of an IEP means that you're guaranteed the rights to a free and appropriate education. And to me, what is so um, challenging is that appropriate is is so subjective, right? Um, the law states that the schools have to provide a basic floor of opportunity, but it doesn't require them to maximize the child's potential. Um, they talk about that you're able to send, you ha- your, your child has a right to a serviceable Chevy, not a Cadillac. So imagine sending your school, <laughs> the most mm. important thing in your life, to school in a serviceable Chevy. I mean, that that is a, a daunting thought. And so my advice when it comes to IEPs and these subjective decisions, especially um, I've heard you talk about this discrepancy model, which is the difference between the child's per potential and performance and so that's why my child was denied we we didn't allow him to fail we actually gave him the support they needed and not not many parents can do that Mm. but we were we were penalized because he was not far enough behind so my advice when it comes to IEPs is let data speak and rule the conversation my younger son was denied an evaluation because he was one point away from being evaluated so it took me 18 months to fight for him. Huh. So if you ask, why are you denying my child? Let me see the numbers. Let me see the range. Then it doesn't become a subjective argument about what is appropriate. It's a numbers-based, independent report mm. that um, allows the parents to have some more power in this. In so many parts of our culture, you have to speak up for yourself. You have to, to be your own advocate, in this case, your own child's advocate. And it does pay off. I think that the takeaway, again, is... There was a results-based 
equation here. You're not simply going to read in this book about the problem. You know if you're a parent about the problem, but there are some wonderful steps you can take that are very helpful. Now, we have to talk a little bit about where we are currently. As we record this, the school season is about to open or it's already opened in some hybrid sense. We've talked with a couple of special educators who deal with kids with dyslexia in terms of the pandemic and homeschooling and Zooming and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I can't imagine the extra burden that's placing on the students and the parents at home. Talk a little bit about where we are now and what impact this is having on those with dyslexia. Yeah, so it actually kind of links up nicely to the question you just asked me about the IEPs. IEPs were built for brick-and-mortar schools, meaning they have one teacher for small reading pullout, and that is not meant to scale in remote learning. Mm. So we're making decisions about learning based on the platform and resources that are available, and that's not acceptable. So to your point, it is putting a great burden on us to fill in the gap. Um, I interviewed a woman in the book who was a homeschooler, Homeschooling is nothing I could ever do. I really look up to the women when the, the, the parents that are able to do that. But um, she, and I'm, I'm hearing that now happening with a lot of parents, they're downloading and purchasing the um, multi-sensory curriculums like Orton Gillingham and Barton and Wilson, and they're trying to, after school, fill in the gaps for their child. That's not something we should have to do. It's just something that that's happening you know um things like speech where it requires a lot of um, children with dyslexia have um, struggles with speech and speech um allows you need to be able to see a mouth and mimic the the, the tone placement mm-hmm. and where it's supposed to be that that is being um you know sacrificed right now there's some great online speech therapy platforms but you know how do you access them and how effective they are? So I'm really worried as my son goes into the third grade, if, if they're not reading by the third grade, you know, they're four times more likely to, to, to drop out of high school. And I really feel our literacy is at stake in this small window that we have that's being affected by the pandemic. Indeed. And uh, you think about the stressors on the adults, the parents, and kids who are not dealing with dyslexia. Add dyslexia to the stress of where we are in 2020, and and you've got every reason to be more vigilant, let's put it that way. I want to remind people, the book available everywhere, it's called One in Five, How We're Fighting for Our Dyslexic Kids by Mickey Boas. And your name is an interesting spelling, M-I-C-K-I which is interesting, and uh, Boas is B-O-A-S. But your website, let's talk about the site and what people will find at InvisibleRedTape.com. Yes, so interesting, Jordan, the name Invisible Red Tape was the original name for the book. (laughs) Mm. And um, as a branding professional, I thought it was something that um, really spoke about the struggles we face with dyslexia because this invisible red tape threatens to wrap itself around us and mummify us to keep us silent. And I feel the more that we speak about it, the more we can cut through this invisible red tape. So the website provides um, interesting facts from the book, different videos, interviews that I've done, and um, other parents to connect with who are also struggling with this because the main reason I wrote this book and the main thing you'll see on the website is if I waited until I had grandkids for this problem to be solved, it would be too late. And so together we're all crowdsourcing and kind of quote unquote hacking the system to find uh, quick and easy ways to cut through the invisible red tape. Well, for all of us at the Web uh, Center, bravo, because 
Dr. Gertrude Webb, God rest her soul, was pioneer, saying a lot of the same things in a different era, and she got some people to listen. You're getting more people to listen and read. So, Mickey, thank you so much for your not only expertise, but your passion. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, and thank you for keeping the stories alive in this format. Many thanks to Mickey Boas. Her website, InvisibleRedTape.com, the book, One in Five. A terrific resource for parents, students, educators, and everyone concerned about our kids. And thanks for listening to Dyslexics Wanted. Please feel free to contact us at our new web address, dyslexicswanted.org. That's dyslexicswanted.org. We welcome guest or topic suggestions. We want to share your story. Dyslexics Wanted is a production of the Web Innovation Center for Dyslexia.